True confession time. True confession time. Do you have a game on your computer or your cell phone that you like to play? Mike, I see that hand. What is it? Hearthstone. Hearthstone? Hearthstone? Heart, like. heart, as in heart. Okay, all right. All right. A game that you like to play on your computer. Patrick? Tetris, all right. Probably. Ooh. Lily's Garden. Ooh, all the... Solitaire. I'm a free cell man myself. For the years, I've played thousands of games. I have a 79% winning rate. I don't know how that compares. I never had this conversation with anybody before. But I think it's, it's, it's fascinating that games that you used to have to have a deck of cards for or, or you know, a board game or something like that are now so conveniently located on your computer or your, your mobile phone. It's so much more efficient, and, and the cards never wear out, and, and it's quicker to play. And, and, and But this week, as I've been thinking about this, I realize that there are probably some games that don't translate to digital versions very well. In particular, and I'm sure people have tried, but I suspect that pinball games do not work very well on a computer. When's the last time you played a good old-fashioned game of pinball? Fun spot. Fun spot, yeah, yeah. Sure, Brian, are they still, do they have still have pinball? Yeah, yeah, all right. So the, there are all these factors involved in a pinball game, and, and some of them would probably translate very well to digital versions, but first you've got this little metal ball, and there's the, the speed at which, you can, at which you can launch it, you know, how far you pull back the spring-loaded whatever that thing is called. Um, let's see, there's, um, there's the gravity involved, a sloped table, and the ball is rolling down, and then there's the, the flippers, and how often, and just, you know, when you hit the flippers, and, and then it gets more complicated. You know, they've got, they've got times when your ball gets kind of held in some kind of a well and, and other things are happening. Maybe other balls are being released and then you have two balls that are bouncing around and I have a hard enough time keeping trap of one, let alone two of them. And then there's, there's flashing lights and there's the high score with somebody else's initials staring you in the face, taunting you. Sometimes there's the, the magnetic thing that turns on that makes your ball kind of swerve and go and unexpected. Oh. And then there's the ability, and this is the thing I don't think you can translate into a digital version of pinball. There's the ability to bump the table. Right? The ball's not going where you want it to go, and so you just kind of give it a little, you know, bump or a, 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 a nudge or, or sometimes... You do it, so, yeah, a little, get your hip into the action there. But if you do it too much, what happens? Tilt. And you only have three balls usually, right? And so your ball just goes straight down into the gutter or whatever. And, and, and you're powerless to do anything to change the, you know, it's, it's just you've lost the ball. You've lost the hope of getting that high score. You're going to have to work so much harder on the next ball if, if, if you've got one more left or two more left. It's just, you know, tilt. It's one of the most humiliating 
aspects of a game that I can possibly think of. Tilt. You know, there's a spiritual parallel to a pinball game. You might find that hard to believe, but just hang in there with me for a few minutes. A a pinball game is this combination of all of those factors, personal skill and the... the I forgot to mention the jukebox is probably blaring in your ear, distracting your... You know, it's this combination of all of these different factors... In a spiritual sense, in the relationship that we have with God, there are a lot of other factors involved, right? You don't have the flashing lights and all of that kind of exciting stuff, but you've got, you've got free will. You are not an automaton doing whatever God dictates that you do. You've got some say in this partnership, in this relationship. There are various spiritual formation disciplines that you may or may not have availed yourself of. So you're, you're, you're more comfortable praying or less comfortable praying. You, you know how to interpret scripture or you're not quite sure what that passage means. And all of this plays into your decision making in this partnership that we have with God. There's your own temperament. How we're made affects the way we relate to God. And that could go on and on and on and on trying to understand that. It's it's a complicated relationship. The influence of the world is also playing its role in, in our relationship with God. The temptations that we face and how we deal with them. So just as a pinball game is a complicated and unpredictable game, so our spiritual life can be complicated and unpredictable in different ways, but just as real. The possibility always exists in our Christian life that we are going to to get off course, that we're going to bump it too hard in one direction or another, and it's going to tilt our spiritual lives. If you'll hang in there with me for a little bit. So let me introduce you to two groups this morning at the time of Jesus who had gone too far in one direction or another. They had tilted their own spiritual lives. The first one are the Sadducees. Sadducees had their roots in the wealthy nobility that lived primarily in Jerusalem and Judea, the environment around Jerusalem. They were people who had been wealthy and influential in positions of, of, of power and authority. The chief priests, many of the priests, were a part of this, the, the Sadducee religious party. As the Greeks had overrun Israel 300 years before Christ, the Sadducees had decided to accept the Greek cultural ways in order to gain political and economic benefit for themselves. It's kind of the, if you can't beat them, join them syndrome. They happened to believe in free will, so that when the Romans eventually took over, they kept on good terms in order to get as much out of that situation for themselves as they could. If you believe that we have the power to make choices, to to determine our own future, you can see how you would try to game the system. The, The Romans are in ultimate authority, but how can I maintain some of the power, some of the authority that uh, that my people have had for generations and generations. It's possible for me to influence the outcome of that, they would think. There are 
written law and oral law in, in Judaism. The written law, of course, we find in the Torah, the commandments and regulations and stipulations about how to worship God. But the oral law or the oral tradition was this massive collection of of uh, commentary on the written law of God that had built up over the years. Just how do you love God? How do you observe the Sabbath? All of this was extensively um, spelled out in the oral law. The Sadducees accepted the written law, but they rejected the oral law. I would imagine the oral law gets much more specific a lot more detail on what you can and cannot do and how you do this or how you do that, whereas the written law was more in generalities. And so they rejected the oral law, went with the written law as their only authority, and yet in reality, for the Sadducees, everything was still negotiable. (laughs) The law might be written. But how, how do we need to, to, to tweak that a little bit so that we maintain our own power, our own positions? They didn't believe in angels or demons in the resurrection or an afterlife in heaven or hell. This is a thumbnail sketch of what the Sadducees believed and how they operated in life. If you want to join me in Matthew chapter 22, we'll read a little vignette of the Sadducees and their relationship with Jesus. Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to begin reading at verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures. Or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, They were astonished at his teaching. You pick up the contradiction in the questions they were asking, the things they were referring to, and what I had just described. So they're asking a question about resurrection. They're asking a question about the afterlife. But these are things that they didn't believe in. So it's a disingenuous question. What are they really trying to accomplish in asking this question, do you suppose? trying to trap Jesus into saying something that would disagree with their interpretation so they could find fault and make an accusation. Specifically, I would suggest to you this morning that the Sadducees had a tilted mission. A tilted mission. What do we suppose that it means 
to have a tilted mission. Jesus sets them straight when they ask their disingenuous question. Jesus sets them straight about their misunderstanding of Scripture. They believed in the written law, but even though they believed in the written law, Jesus says, you you don't know what you're talking about. You're not the experts in the law that you think you are. You don't understand Scripture. You don't understand the resurrection, something that you deny, so how could you understand it? You don't understand the power and the authority of God. As it turns out, the Sadducees were interested in power, but not God's power or God's mission. Remember, in this sermon series, I'm I'm using power and mission somewhat interchangeably. God, the Holy Spirit, fills us with his power. But that power is not just so that we can be strong people, bodybuilders, that Power is given to us for the purpose of mission. But the Sadducees were only interested in personal power. They were only interested in maintaining the authority and the freedoms and the influence that they had in Jerusalem and surrounding areas. If Jesus would antagonize Rome, if he would grow in in fame and influence, then that would upset the status quo that the Sadducees were enjoying in their relationship with Rome. They would lose the power that they had, the influence that they had. And so they attack Jesus. They ask this question because their primary mission is to maintain their own power. They were small fish in the big pond of the Roman Empire. But they wanted to be big fish, at least in the small pond of Israel. Not much, but a little bit of power is something to be held on to. God's mission, on the other hand, God's mission for Israel was that they had been blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. Why did God call Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Because he wanted them to be the the glowing example of God's glory in the world. He wanted them to be the ones to demonstrate what it was like to live in partnership with God in this cosmic temple that he had created. He wanted them to be the mirror that reflected the glory of God into the lives of Gentiles, other peoples. That was God's mission for his chosen people, for Israel. God loved the world so much And he wanted the Israelites to embody that love in the world. But the Sadducees had lost sight of this mission of God. They had lost sight of the imperative to be a blessing to the nations. Instead, their tilted mission was to maintain as much political and religious power as they could in the face of the Roman occupation of their land. Everything else was negotiable. There was an overemphasis on personal power at the, to the exclusion of God's mission of love. And it made them completely blind to Jesus, to the Messiah, and to his mission. So the Sadducees had had their shot at Jesus, and he shut them down com- completely. So who's next? The Pharisees. The Pharisees had their roots, their origins, not in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the power structures of the capital of Israel, 
Instead, their roots were out in the countryside. They were ordinary country folk who, when the Greeks had invaded their land, had resisted the influence of this spread of Greek and Hellenistic culture. Their name means the pious ones or the separate ones. They were popular people, even though there were probably no more than 5,000 of them at any one time. They were still well thought of by the ordinary common people of the land. They believed, on the, unlike the Sadducees, in the miraculous and the supernatural. They believed in the hierarchy of angels and demons which had more recently developed in Judaism. They believed in the validity of the oral law and traditions, all of those commentaries on the written law. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees were largely responsible for developing that tr- tradition, the oral law. They believed that that oral law was absolute and binding. So they came to Jesus with a question designed to paint him into a small corner of their ever-expanding legal universe. We continue with Matthew 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is the greatest commandment in the Torah, the written law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Whereas the Sadducees had a tilted mission, an out-of-focus, tilted idea of why they were there, the Pharisees had tilted purity. The Pharisees, who valued the oral tradition over the written law, ask a question about the greatest commandment in the written law. They rejected Jesus due to his frequent violation of their many interpretations of the law, right? Jesus performed so many of his healing miracles on the Sabbath, and they found that intolerable, because that's not how they said you should... Celebrate the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath. Time and time and time again, Jesus said and did things that violated their oral traditions, their oral law. They were not interested in political power as the Sadducees were. But they were going to work to make sure that purity, according to their interpretation of the law, was everyone else's priority. 
And if you couldn't keep up, then you would be cast aside. Unfortunately, theirs was a tilted purity, completely devoid of God's love. God's love for the entire world. Why are you hanging out and eating with sinners and tax collectors? Why are you spending time with people that aren't ritually clean? You're not observing the purity as we have defined it. How, and let alone, you have such great interest for Gentiles and other people who can't keep up. How can that possibly be the kind of purity that we define it to be? God's expectation for purity for Israel was that they would bear the image of the holy God and shine that glory into all the world. God loves all the world. And purity is not just keeping the rules. Purity is reflecting the image of God in whose image we are made. And a twisted purity is to say that this is not good. This is, this is only good for Israelites. This is only good for law-abiding Israelites. Nobody else can keep up with this. That's not what God's expectation for purity in Israel was all about. So the Pharisees had lost sight of the purity to which the Israelites had been called. Instead of purity inspired by love, they enforced a legalistic purity that was exclusive and anything but missional. Theirs was an overemphasis on personal purity to the exclusion of love. And it made them completely blind to the Messiah and his purity. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were both playing an overly aggressive game of pinball. There was a whole lot of nudging and thumping and bumping going on there to the point that they had tilted the game. They had lost their ball. They might have had political and religious authority in Israel. They might have had influence among the common people, but they had lost the game, so to speak. And there's no more graphic story of just how lost and blind they were than the story of the raising of Lazarus. You can find that story in John chapter 11. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. And he stopped, he had stopped many times at the home of Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. But this time he had gotten word that Lazarus had died. He had postponed his trip a few days so that he didn't arrive at the home of Lazarus for four days after Lazarus had, Lazarus had died and been, had been buried. <clears throat> you remember the story, don't you? Jesus shows up. He has conversations with the sisters. They're distraught. They're, they're questioning his judgment, his compassion. Jesus loved Lazarus. He weeps over Lazarus. And his death, he he goes to the tomb, he asks them to roll the stone away, they put up the fuss, oh it's going to be stinky in there, he's been dead for four days, just do it, so they do it, he says, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus comes out, they unwrap him, he's as good as new. This is probably the greatest display of Jesus' resurrection power to date, right? Jesus has the power 
over death. Perhaps the greatest fear that human beings have. And Jesus just wipes that away. Lazarus, come out. If there was anything that Jesus could do to demonstrate that he was God's Messiah, that he was the Son of God with all the power of God, raising somebody who was dead and buried for four days, good and dead, that certainly should have wiped away anybody's anybody's doubts or questions about who Jesus was and the power of God. John chapter 11, beginning with verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. There were people who got the message. There were people who had come to console these sisters and all of a sudden found them rejoicing. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests, who were probably Sadducees, and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our power and our privileges and our... (laughs) Well, you know what they're really worried about, right? The Sadducees are worried about maintaining the status quo of holding on to their personal power. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. Get a glimpse into the the passion of God to reach the entire world there. To bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on they plotted to take his life. Jesus demonstrates this extraordinary resurrection power of God. The power that God has to deliver us from our sins, deliver us from death. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests, when they hear about this, their only interest is that Jesus is violating the principles they hold dear. Jesus is violating the priorities that they live their lives by. Jesus is doing something that they just cannot understand. God has to speak prophetically through the high priest, not in his own words, but inspired by God, to show them that what they're doing is upside down from what God wants to accomplish. They completely missed the Messiah. Intent on maintaining their tilted purity and their tilted mission, that despite their conflicting theologies, the Sadducees and the Pharisees joined forces to get rid of the real Messiah. What pitiful blindness. 
the title of this sermon series is Purity Plus Mission Equals Holiness. Purity can mean many things, obviously. The Pharisees had turned it into an exclusive, legalistic, judgmental thing, completely devoid of the love of God that makes us truly pure. Likewise, mission can mean many things, and the Sadducees had turned it into a selfish, nationalistic power grab, completely devoid of the universal love of God that makes us truly one. Tilted purity plus tilted mission equals tilted holiness. Absolutely devoid of the love of God. Let's come back to that pinball illustration. We are partners with God as we play this game of spiritual life. Partners with God in a complicated and a difficult mission to be and to bear His image in the world. He's called us to be holy as He is holy. To be holy as God is holy. And we've got decisions to make from day to day in this partnership with God. And as I pointed out earlier, everyone in this room is different in some significant ways from every other person. Look at the person sitting next to you and say, you're not like me. And praise God we're not like one another. We are this extraordinarily gifted, unique individual made in the image of God, just like the person sitting next to you. A person who has been invited to be a part of this extraordinary mission of reflecting the glory and image of God into the world around us. We have been given the example of Christ who showed us that laying down our lives in servanthood is the way that God wants to accomplish this, fulfill this mission. And yet he does it differently in each one of our lives. And as we work together in the body of Christ, all of these diverse, unique parts mesh so well to create this full image, the glorious image of God. We may worship differently than somebody else's else's way of worshiping. We may pray differently than the person sitting next to you prays. Our temperament means that we pick up on different parts of Scripture and different parts of this mission, and we do it in a different way than other people do. But praise God. (laughs) But all of that uniqueness, all of those variables... All of those flashing lights and magnetic grips and and the flippers and all of that stuff is God's intention that we consecrate each aspect of our own lives to Him. We say, Lord, I'm not going to be able to do this in a holy way. This is going to end up being a selfish train wreck if you're not the Lord of my life. I'm going to be just like the Sadducees, striving for personal power. I'm going to be just like the Pharisees, lauding, lording it over other people because I can keep certain commandments that you can't keep as well as I can. You know, if we aren't careful, all of this complicated, wonderful partnership with God is going to be tilted. Fortunately, in this passage, Jesus gives us words to live by, right? 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This is what godly purity looks like. And then he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what godly mission looks like, right? So in these two greatest commandments, we have everything we need to know about how to live not a tilted purity, but a godly purity. Not a tilted mission, but a godly mission. Love the Lord our God with all of our soul, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. As I quite often like to do, I'd like to give us an opportunity to spend a little time listening to the Holy Spirit right now. So if you'd join me in prayer. Ask ourselves some questions. How are we playing this pinball game of holiness? What are you having to do to keep the ball in play? Find yourself having to bump the table from time to time, sometimes fairly aggressively to get back on track. more concerned about my own power and influence and having my way and getting my way. Or do I hear your voice loud and clear calling me forward? Are we paying close enough attention to God or are we pursuing our own personal goals? Spirit, at one and the same time we rejoice in the way that you have made us, but we're worried that it might lead us astray if we're not careful. Lord, we hear Jesus pray, not my will be done, but your will be done. We recognize that we really do have a will. We want things to be done the way that make us feel comfortable. We want to do things the way that makes sense to us. Lord, are we paying enough attention to that prayer? Not my will, but your will be done. Lord, we believe that you have called us to be holy as you are holy. You have called us to be pure as you are pure. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who makes us pure through your saving and sanctifying grace. Lord, we consecrate to you this day the things that make us unique, the things that are wonderfully made in your image, but still have the potential of getting us off track. Lord, we consecrate these things to you and pray that you would fill them with 
your purity, but also with your power. Lord, thank you for speaking to us this morning. Now fill us with a spirit of courage and humility that we might be willing and able to obey what you're calling us to, what you're calling us away from. Inspire us with your spirit that this week we will be your missional people, loving anybody and everybody. Lord, we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us this week to also love our neighbor as ourselves. All of people, all of God's people say, Amen.